Well, as we open God's word together this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking for his assistance. O sovereign Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to know you and to have your word, your perfect and inerrant, infallible revelation to us. As we open it this morning, I pray that you would help our hearts to approach it with reverence, with humility, and with a desire to hear you speak to us from your word. As we just sang, Lord, we want these truths to change us. We don't want them to go in one ear and out the other. We don't want our hearts to remain unchanged. We want to be made more like Christ. And so we ask that as we hear his words this morning, that they would be words of life to us. That you would bring life where there is spiritual death. We pray that you would bring humility where there is pride. And may you bring obedience where there is disobedience. May we revel and rejoice in the gospel this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, when it comes to preparing for the future, there are two mistakes that are commonly made. One is to dismiss uh, or to fail to repair altogether, and you, uh, you fail to plan at all, or you prepare in the wrong way. You can think of a natural disaster like a hurricane, there's right ways to prepare for such a thing, right ways to prepare one's home and affairs to make sure that they are safe. And there's wrong ways to prepare, foolish ways that thinking that they can somehow keep out the forces of nature uh, or ways of dealing with it that are, uh, are not appropriate or right. Apparently, there are those who suggest every time a hurricane is barreling down upon Florida that they, uh, the U.S. should nuke the hurricane to, uh, to deal with such a thing, as if that, number one, could be possible, number two, it would do anything. And so, apparently, there was even a, uh, a law enforcement agency in a county in, uh, in Florida that actually had to post their Facebook group to tell people to not to shoot at the hurricane. It's not going to do anything. <laughs> and uh, so again, there's right ways to prepare. There's wrong ways to prepare. And this can happen spiritually as well. That there's ways to prepare for the future spiritually. There's ways to do it wrongly. The Jews in the first century Israel that as Jesus interacted with them, found that this was a nation that was not prepared spiritually. They assumed that because they were children of Abraham, Israelites by birth, that they were automatically guaranteed a position in God's kingdom. But as it were, they were spiritually unprepared for the arrival of God's Messiah. John the Baptist, you'll remember, sought to prepare the people. He was the forerunner, went ahead of the Messiah and said, told them to get ready for the Messiah was coming. He called them to repent and be baptized. And although he was popular with the people, the, the soul of the nation fundamentally was not changed. Jesus then came and had the same message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He announced the kingdom's nearness. 
and the necessity for everyone to prepare spiritually by repenting of their sins. They needed to turn from their sin and embrace God-sent, Spirit-anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. As we've been going through Luke's gospel, we've been charting this interplay between Jesus' message and the people's response. Most recently, we've been in Luke 12 and 13, in which Jesus has been warning the nation of future judgment that's awa that awaits. He's told them to repent or they will perish. He told them God is looking for them to produce the right spiritual fruit and that God is being patient with them right now, but that patience won't last forever. There will be a reckoning, a day of accountability will come. And just like there will be a day of reckoning and accountability for Israel, so there is one for us as well. And we need to be ready for the coming kingdom. We need to be spiritually ready. And we're going to see how to do that this morning in our passage in Luke chapter 13. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have your own Bible this morning, you can turn there in the Pew Bible to page 1037. Now you'll remember that last week we looked at the account in verses 10 through 17 of how Jesus moved with compassion, went towards a woman who was bent over for 18 years with a spirit of disability. And this illustrated how Jesus moves towards sinners, those who are broken by the fall, broken by the forces of evil. He moves toward them to heal them. And Jesus there calls out the religious leaders of the nation who looked upon this woman and were happier to let her remain in her disability and in her pain and go give their animal water in the morning. They had more compassion on their animals than they did upon people. And Jesus, in great contrast to this, displayed the divine love of God as he ministered to this poor woman. But it's in light of that kingdom display of power that Jesus displayed there in that synagogue that Jesus then pivots and begins teaching on the kingdom. And particularly, the necessity of understanding God's kingdom and preparing for it. And so, with that as introduction, remembering the context, let's pick up and read our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 18. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Follow along as I read. He, being Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. 
When, the, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths upon all our hearts. Well, this passage is gonna help us to prepare for the kingdom in two ways. To help us prepare for the kingdom in two ways. We prepare first by seeing God's plan. We prepare first by seeing God's plan. And we'll see this in verses 18 through 21. Here in these verses, Jesus begins by giving us two parables. They're not labeled as parables here, but in Matthew 13, where they are also given, they are labeled as parables there. Here, they, in Luke, they are simply introduced as metaphors. They're, he says, what is the kingdom of God like, or to what shall I compare it? There's an illustration, a comparison going on. And they tell us something about God's kingdom program. Now the kingdom parables, which are primarily clustered in Matthew 13, we're in Luke 13, but Matthew 13, they, there are many of them that are listed there and they all tell us something about God's kingdom program. They begin with statements such as, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, and they each reveal something different about the kingdom program. They aren't all repeating themselves, saying the same thing, although there is some repetition. Sometimes the parable teaches us how people enter the kingdom. Sometimes they teach on how the message of the kingdom is received by people out in the world. Other times, the parable speaks about how people value the message of, of Christ and the salvation that he offers. And even though these, all these parables have the same kind of introductory statement, the kingdom of heaven is like, they all teach something different about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They don't all describe the kingdom period proper, but describe other things related to this kingdom. So too, here in Luke 13, Jesus is telling us something about his kingdom program. In particular, I believe there are two things Jesus reveals about God's plan through these two metaphors. The first part of God's plan revealed in these parables is the kingdom's coming dominance. The kingdom's coming dominance. And we see this in verses 18 through 19. That should not be 13 through 19, but 18 through 19. He first describes it as like a grain of mustard seed, which a man planted in his garden. And after planting it, it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. 
Now mustard plants are common and native to Palestine. And although mustard seeds are not the smallest seeds on the planet, they are identified in uh, Matthew and in Mark as the smallest seeds known to this generation, to the people in this area of the world at that time. These plants, these mustard seeds, although being extremely small, would grow into a shrub that could be 8 to 12 feet high. Jesus is then looking to that mustard seed and the plant that produces from it and drawing a comparison to something about the kingdom of God. And he says that just like this mustard seed goes from a small plant to a, uh, a small seed rather to a big plant, so too the kingdom of God has a, big, a small beginning and a, and a great climactic finish. And this imagery that is here is borrowed from the Old Testament. There are several places in the Old Testament where kingdoms or kings are spoken of as a plant that is planted and then grows big and particularly that then also have the birds come nest in the branches. And in Ezekiel 17 verses 22 to 24 there's a prophecy about a future king of Israel particularly one who's in the line of David, who would be planted in the ground and grow into a tree that would cause the birds to be secure in it. It says, thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel 17, I will myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I'll break off the topmost of its young twigs of a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will, ret, will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. The reference here is to a future king of Israel who will become the great king that will dominate the earth. Now, it's a different plant mentioned here, a cedar instead of a mustard plant, but the point is the same. In particular, it talks about birds that come and nest in the branches. Jesus mentions it. It's here in Ezekiel 17. This references the domination over the whole world. Birds representing all sorts of people means that they will all, people of all the sorts of all over the planet will come and find safety and nest in the branches of this tree. And so I believe that Jesus here is saying, I am that king of Ezekiel 17. I am the ruler of the world. I am the Davidic king who will dominate the planet. All the nations will come to me. Interestingly, there are two other places in the Old Testament where a king and a nation is spoken of in these same kinds of terms. But they relate to pagan uh, empires. Daniel 4, you're familiar with the story of Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled, right? He was, he was the great king, but in his pride, God humbled him so that he, he was transformed for a period of seven years to be an animal who went out and he had to eat grass and he had hair that grew like feathers and he had nails that grew like talons. He became animal-like as God humbled him. Well, the prophecy 
the dream that was told to Nebuchadnezzar that that would happen to him gave the illustration of a tree. In that dream, Nebuchadnezzar is compared to a tree that's visible to the ends of the earth. And it speaks of the dominion that goes to the ends of the earth. And it says that the birds of the heavens lives in its branches. The same illustration. Ezekiel 31, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Ezekiel 31 is Assyria. Same language used. Assyria is described in a similar way as a great tree and the birds of the heavens nest in its boughs. Now, what's interesting about these two comparisons is not just the similarity of language, but the differences of how those kingdoms end. The trees of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and the, king, and the tree of Assyria are both cut down by God, it says in those passages. Because of their pride, they were cut down. But the tree of the kingdom of God that Jesus describes in Luke 13 is not cut down. Jesus leaves it. It grew, it became a tree, and the birds of the heavens rested in its branches, and it's that way on into eternity. There is no cutting down. When it dominates the world, it will remain that way. Now, this Luke 13 doesn't describe this reality of a forever kingdom explicitly, but I believe that for those who are well-versed in the Old Testament, they would hear the allusion to these other pagan kingdoms and they would recognize that there is no reference to being cut down here just like those other ones were. Now, to Jesus' adversaries in that day, the religious leaders, they wanted Jesus to be cut down. And in fact, in a mere matter of months, they would seek to bring an end to Jesus and all of his teaching, thinking that they were doing God's will. But Jesus here leaves the metaphor open to say, when he becomes, the kingdom comes to full fruition, it will dominate the earth. It will remain an established tr strong tree, unlike Babylon, unlike Assyria. And so Jesus is saying that when his kingdom comes to prominence, it will have worldwide dominance. At the time that Jesus spoke these words, though, they might have been a little hard to believe. I mean, think about it. He, he has a band of faithful followers, yes. And there might be some popularity with the multitudes. But he's talking about worldwide domination. This is in a little corner of the Roman Empire. Even if he was to get all of Israel on his side and there was to be this king over Israel and they accepted him, he still had to deal with the Roman Empire. That didn't look very feasible at this moment, particularly because Jesus wasn't exactly garnering religious uh, zealots, people that would fight back against Rome. He wasn't gathering an army to himself. And so, it would be easy to second guess whether this kingdom would really take place. Would it ever come? But Jesus' metaphor here speaks to his disciples then and to us today that to assure us that his kingdom of worldwide dominance is coming. It is coming. He will be that tree who will be planted and will dominate the earth. But he gives us a second metaphor in verses 20 and 21 that teaches, secondly, the kingdom's inevitable dominance. Inevitable dominance. One is his coming dominance. One, the secondly, is that it's inevitable. The second image the Lord uses is one from the domestic fear. 
sphere, rather. He, he moves from the field to inside the house. He moves from what was traditionally the, the man's occupation to what is traditionally the woman's occupation in the home there in Israel. And he says that the kingdom of God is like leaven, like leaven. Leaven refers to any rising agent that is used within bread to make it light and fluffy, to cause it to rise. You'll remember that unleavened bread, Israel was required to eat at the Passover. They could not eat bread with leaven in it because they could not wait for the leaven to rise. They needed to eat unleavened bread because they needed to eat it in haste. Now, even though there are some differences between natural leaven and lab-created yeast that we have today, they both do the same thing and therefore uh, uh, apply to the illustration here. This woman hid, it says, hid the leaven in three measures of flour. And it would stay there until it was all leavened, until it would all be affected. Now, once leaven is introduced, once yeast is introduced to flour, there's no pulling it back. There's no way to reverse that. Once it's been put into the flour, it's going to continue its course through that flour until it is fully affected, it is fully influenced. As Scripture says elsewhere, speaking about something different, it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It continues to go through it all. Now, this parable, I believe, has been misunderstood and misapplied in two primary ways. First, Bible teachers of a prior generation, and particularly those who held to a dispensational point of view, which I would hold to myself, but I believe it was misunderstood and mistaught that leaven is always and only an evil influence. Now, it is true that predominantly, if you look up leaven in your concordance or you search for it in your Bible app, you're going to see that predominantly the references are to negative influences. Speaking about leaven that is going to leaven the whole and it's going to influence things. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 5 that it's going to, evil, if we allow it to stay into the church, is gonna, the sin is going to continue to affect the whole church. But, just because Scripture talks about it in other places as an evil influence doesn't mean that that's what referring to here. And so it was taught that this parable is saying that there is an evil influence that would work itself into the church over time and that, and that it would, the church would be a mixed bag in which it would be somewhat corrupted even into the end of days. Now, as most commentators recognize today, that interpretation doesn't seem to be holding up to what Jesus is talking about here. There doesn't seem to be any sort of negative connotation to what Jesus is mentioning in this parable. In fact, the context doesn't seem to be talking about an evil influence at all, but particularly about a declaration of Jesus' dominance. Now, I believe this is a case, and this is an important note for your Bible study, this is a case of where word studies can go wrong, okay? Word studies are helpful. We need them. We want to see how a word is used across Scripture. But when we look how a word is used across Scripture, and then we take that meaning and try to put that into a passage that it doesn't quite fit, we've done a disservice. 
A word is primarily defined by how it's used in its context. And so the context, how it's used in that particular passage is how we can determine it's being used. And so I don't believe leaven here is a negative thing, but rather a positive thing. But the second way that this parable, I believe, has been misunderstood is by those who say that the teaching of the gospel as represented by this leaven will result in the world being Christianized. That the leaven will work its way through the entire world and so near the end of days it will result in a Christianized world in which the majority, the vast majority of the world will be converted. They believe that the flower is the world, the leaven is the gospel, and at some point in this age, before Christ returns, the gospel will go through all the world and win it to Christ. This viewpoint is what is called post-millennialism, that Christ will return after the millennium, and that we as the church, through our preaching of the gospel, bring about this millennium, this great Christian age of a Christianized world, and that Christ will return after that time. I believe that this viewpoint is wrong for many reasons, but once again, in this particular passage, in this parable, it's a problem of context. The verses that immediately follow this parable or this metaphor speak about a narrow door or a narrow road and that many will not be able to find it. Many will not be able to enter but according to post-millennialism, at some point, these verses stop being true in this age. At some point, there will be a majority that will find it. It won't no longer be few that find it. It will be many that find it. Now, remember also that these parables are found in Matthew chapter 13. And I want to turn you there just briefly because I want you to see the context of these parables in that passage. So flip back a couple books to Matthew chapter 13. I believe this also helps us to understand and give, shed some light on what Jesus may be speaking about in these parables, particularly the parable of the leaven. In Matthew 13, the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven are again grouped together. They're found in verses 31 through 33. Verses 31 through 33. But I want you to see what is the parable that comes right before it. It's the parable, in English Standard Version, is labeled the parable of the weeds. You might know it as the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay? The wheat and the tares. In that parable, weeds are sown into a wheat field that are cleared out at the harvest. So follow along as I read. Look at, let's look at the parable of this wheat and the tares, or the weeds. Verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? 
But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, let's look at this parable explained down in verse 36. Then the crowds left and le then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples said to him saying explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field and he answered the one who sows the good seed is the son of man the field is the world the good seed is the sons of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear." Now here's the things that we need to gather out of this parable of the weeds that applies to us as we seek to interpret this parable of the leaven. Number one is that good and evil exist together until the end of the age. There are those, the weeds, and there are the wheat, and they are there together in the world all the way until the end. At the harvest, the end of the age, the world is dominated by righteous people. That postmillennialism says. They believe that there is a, a predominance of righteousness. But we see here that when Jesus returns, he's judging sinful mankind, and there will be many to judge. And then, verse 43, it says, When does this kingdom begin? Is this kingdom now that's growing now throughout the earth that the church and the kingdom are the same and they're, they're growing now? No, he says that it's after this harvest has taken place and after there has been the punishment of evildoers. Verse 43, it says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The kingdom begins after the return of Christ. The kingdom has not been growing previous to the harvest. It begins after the world has been purged of evil. And so I believe that this viewpoint that says the leaven is the kingdom now in this church age growing to take over the planet fails to reconcile the details of all the parables that we find in Scripture. They camp out on the parable of the leaven but miss the details of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so I believe what Jesus is speaking of then as we flip back to Luke chapter 13 and we seek to understand what is Jesus talking about in this parable of the leaven. I believe he is not talking about the conversion of the world per se, but he's talking about the conversion of the elect, those who God has chosen for salvation. There is a definite amount of people that God has chosen unto salvation before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 makes that abundantly clear, that those who are saved have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And so I believe that's represented by the three measures of flour. There's a definite amount that God has. During this church age, God is preparing people for that future kingdom. He's, he's calling out people who he has chosen to be sons of the kingdom, to prepare them for the coming kingdom of Christ. 
that they might have their eyes open, that they might be saved, that they might recognize that they are following the evil one and said that they might follow Christ. And they might be ready for his return. He's calling people out from among the nations. I have a chart. It wouldn't be a good message on the end, end times without a chart. Um, but you can see just on the left we have the cross roughly representing uh, when Christ was here death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven, church. The church begins, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. And during this church age, there's preparation for the kingdom. There is a growing number of kingdom citizens who are coming to faith in Christ as we are represented of those here, those who have trusted in Jesus, are kingdom citizens who will one day inherit the kingdom. We are heirs of the kingdom. It just, we haven't inherited it yet. And so we wait for Jesus to return and set up his thousand-year kingdom, otherwise known as the millennium, in which he will reign upon this earth. And then that kingdom, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, will be handed over to the Father, and that will be turned into the eternal kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever, otherwise known as eternity, as heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth. During this age, there is a growing number of kingdom citizens who are coming to Christ and when all of the leaven is leavened, when all of the elect are saved and called out from this world, that is when it is complete. But what we can see is that this work is inevitable. God's work of calling out people from the nations is marching forward. There's nothing that can stop it. The leaven has begun to do its work. And so friends, we can be encouraged by God's plan that what is revealed in these verses is that the kingdom of Christ is coming and he's calling out people for himself, a people for his own possession. He is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Even though the church may seem persecuted from without and divided from within, God is in charge, he is leading the charge and he will ultimately bring about his ends and his purposes for his church and for this world. He is the author bringing history to its conclusions and for he will bring about the end of of the age and his timing. And there's not one of his people will be lost or left behind. And so the first thing we must do to prepare for this kingdom is to see God's plan, understand it clearly. But secondly, we must not only see God's plan, but seek God's salvation. If we're gonna prepare for this coming kingdom when Christ returns, then we've gotta seek God's salvation. And this is where Jesus turns next. Because his kingdom is coming, because it's inevitable, it's a freight train that is, that is headed our way. We don't know when it's going to arrive, but we know it will. Then everyone must reckon with this reality that the Son of Man is arriving. It's going to affect everyone, and so Jesus, out of compassion and love, seeks to warn everyone that they would act before it's too late. And so he wants us to seek salvation for two reasons. And first we see, let's see it in verses 22 through 20, first part of 24. And that is, seek God's salvation because the door is narrow. Seek God's salvation because the door is narrow. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Verse 22 reminds us that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. 
This theme of this journeying towards Jerusalem began in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And once it says, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew that when he went there, he was going to be killed by the religious leaders. He revealed that to the disciples in Luke 9, 22. And so 9, 51, he heads there boldly, courageously to deal with his fate. He knows he will be crucified. But he has much ministry to accomplish and much teaching to dispense along the way. We've seen lots of that already. He's going to continue that way until he enters Jerusalem. Verse 23 records a question someone asked Jesus about the number of the people who will be saved. Will there be many included in the kingdom or just a few? And Jesus then turns to answer this, but indirectly. Notice he doesn't give them a number. He doesn't say, yes, there's many, or no, there's a few, or... He, he answers indirectly. In fact, if he answers with what we know in Revelation where it describes a scene of myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of people gathered around the throne of God and praising him, then the odds are pretty good. If there's, if there's a great number of people that are saved, then, man, I, I have a good odds that I might be included in that. But instead... Jesus emphasizes the urgency of responding to his message. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. Don't worry about the end result. Don't worry about how many there's going to be in the end. You focus on yourself and you need to strive to enter the narrow door. The word strive here comes from the Greek word agonizomai, from which we get the word agony. This straining, this making every effort, this straining every nerve towards making this a reality. It speaks of engaging with conflict, to fight, to struggle. It's used throughout the New Testament, but in this context, he's speaking to make every effort in order to be counted among the saved. Jesus here is saying that every single person needs to drop what they're doing and make every effort to see that this is their number one priority. There's nothing more important. Like a nation who jumps to action upon hearing of an invading army, so every person must jump to action spiritually upon hearing of the looming threat. Why must they strive? Why must they make every effort? Because the door is narrow. This means that it's limiting, that we can't just go in with, with whatever we have. It's hard. Matthew 7 compares the narrow way with the wide way, you'll remember. The wide way, people waltz right through and take whatever they want and live however they want. They can be themselves, follow their heart. They can be whoever they want to be and everything's cool. There's no confrontation. There's nothing they have to do to change and they continue to walk down that wide path. But Jesus warns that that wide path leads to destruction. The narrow path, in contrast, requires change. It requires as Jesus says, repentance. We've got to let go. It's narrow. We can't carry bags of stuff in, as it were. It requires something of us. It, we have to let go. Just in verse 5 of the same chapter, he calls it to repent. We must like, let go of living life our own way if we're going to surrender to Christ's way. You see, coming to Christ is not something that we just do on the side in order to try to merrily make our way we, and go on with life. We, when we come to Christ, 
We repent of our pride, of our hedonism, of our arrogance. We are cut to the quick. We recognize that we have sinned against God. And we let go of everything if we can have Christ. Friends, when someone comes to Jesus, they can echo the same words as the Apostle Paul that we looked at on Easter Sunday in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the confession of someone who has striven in the narrow way, who has sought to go into the narrow door. And I ask you, have you striven for this? Do you strive to enter this door? Will you agonize until you know that you've entered, until you could be secured and guaranteed that you know Christ? There's nothing of greater importance. See, people carry on and think they'll turn to Christ when it's more convenient or when it won't cost too much. Or they delude themselves into thinking that there's going to be a time when it's going to be very clear, like there's going to be like smoke on the horizon. Oh, wait, I know the fire's coming. I better do something. I'll get my act together. And so they think that sometime in their life it's going to be clear that when God's judgment's coming or the end is coming or their life is coming to an end, that they'll get things right before all that hits. Friends, it's a delusion. We don't have those clear signs of when that end will come. And so Jesus exhorts us, he exhorts you today, strive to enter the narrow door. But not only should men and women seek God's salvation because the door is narrow, but secondly, because the time is short. Because the time is short. Look at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you may begin, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and then he will come to you, he will, and then he will answer you, I do not know where you've come from. Friends, this is a scary thought, that many will seek to en enter and will not be able to. The door is narrow, and that door is closing soon. The door will not remain open forever. Many will not realize their need to embrace Christ until it's too late, until the door is shut. And notice how Jesus plays out this door analogy. He puts it into an illustration of a master of the house, which we, it becomes clear in verse 26 that he's really this master who's going to shut the door. But he plays it out in the third person here, for the master and second person for the audience that there's a master of the house who's going to shut the door. And he says, then you, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door. You think you have access. You think you're going to be able to get in. But notice, their, their, their request is a little benign. They said, Lord, open to us. Hey, we're here. We're here for the party. And he says, I don't know you. I don't know where you've come from. They're unknown to Jesus. Folks, we all hate the feeling of regret when we miss a deadline. When a really important deadline and we were late on it and we go, oh shoot, I needed to act before this time and now it's too late. Could be some program you forgot to sign up for, now you're gonna owe more money. It could be uh, maybe a sweepstakes or something where you could 
gain from it. It could be you're filing your taxes. But we get that pit in our stomachs when we feel the, the loss or the severity of the consequences for missing the deadline. And friends, what Jesus describes here is that greatest feeling of loss. That we, those who will miss the open door, will face eternal loss, the greatest loss. These folks have lost their souls and the chance to be saved. So friends, the time is short. No one knows how long their life may be. No one knows when the door may be shut. Their opportunity to respond in God's kindness and patience, there is still time. He is still beckoning that all may come, that all may enter today. If you can hear my voice, you can hear the, the words of Jesus today that you can strive to enter today and know with security and confidence that you know the Lord and that that door will never be shut to you. And that on that final day, you will have salvation in Jesus' name. But do not trample upon the kindness and grace and patience of God to think that you have another day. Because when your life ends, you will have to face him face to face and at that point, it'll be too late. But there's a third reason we need to seek God's salvation through Christ. And it's because proximity is not enough. Proximity is not enough. You say, why Jesus are you pressing this thing on striving to enter through the narrow door? Why can't you just have me, can't you see I've been around? Can't you see I've been immersed? I've been like soaking in all of this Jesus stuff. I've been seeing your ministry. Why are you, why are you getting up into my kitchen? Why are, you, why are you, you making this so uncomfortable for me? I thought we were good. Jesus makes it clear that just being around and being familiar with it all is not enough. Familiarity with the things of God and familiarity with the truth will not count. Look at what goes on in verse 26. Then you will begin to say, they begin, become more desperate. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you have come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You see, they believe that because Jesus walked in and among them, that they would be safe from judgment. They believed that his presence was a guarantee that they were the chosen ones. They weren't walking through the towns of, of say, Syria. They weren't, he wasn't walking through the towns, he wasn't walking through Rome. Rome wasn't the chosen nation. No, Israel was the chosen nation. And Jesus was walking through their towns and teaching in their streets. And so we must be safe, right? We're Jews. We're God's chosen people. We're children of Abraham. The Messiah had come to their neighborhood and had even feasted in their homes. And so they thought they were on his side. But notice how, how strong Jesus' language is in verse 27. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus says, I will utterly disown you. It's not that he didn't know who they were, but that he doesn't have a relationship with them. They're not in his family. He goes, you're not of my father. You're not born of heavenly seed. You are not born again. I don't know who you are. You're not in my family. You don't have family resemblance. In addition to the lack of relationship, Jesus reveals their true character. Notice what he calls them. 
the end of verse 27, you workers of evil. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 6, verse 8, where David speaks to see his enemies depart from him. And so by Jesus quoting this verse, he's saying that you who seem to think you're my friends, on that day you will prove to be my enemies. You must flee from my presence for you are workers of evil. Sure, now, when he, when he sat at their, at their tables and when he taught in their streets, he was the gentle, lowly Savior that they, they were around. They enjoyed his presence. Notice it says, we ate and drank in your presence. And so they thought that that idea of them being in his presence would continue indefinitely. And Jesus says, no, there's going to be a time when we cannot be, occupy the same space, when you cannot be in my presence. This will come to an end when I return as judge and king. Now they would have pushed back, workers of evil, us? We're Israelites. We follow the law. We're the most moral people on the planet. What do you mean, workers of evil? But Jesus reveals that even if they kept all of the moral law, but they had failed to embrace him, then they ultimately were workers of evil. Folks, here's what they missed. In all the attention surrounding Jesus, they failed to recognize their personal need to repent and respond. They may have thoroughly enjoyed his presence. They may have had a great time hearing his teaching. They may have traveled distances to see the miracles and to hear him teach. They probably were caught up in the social stir. They talked about him often. They even invited him into their homes. But Jesus warns them here that proximity is not enough. And nearness to Jesus doesn't save. Personal response, personal repentance, personal faith in Christ is required. And the same is true in the church today. For far too long, there have been those who have attended American churches who thought that simply being in and around the church and hearing preaching week in and week out and seeming to have Christian morals and values, that this would save them and this would guarantee their salvation one day. But friends, to be in and around, to be proximate to the truth is not the same thing as believing the truth. To hear about repentance is not the same thing as repenting ourselves. There must be personal action. Familiarity with the gospel is not the same thing as believing it. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as trusting Jesus. And these people who have sat in churches maybe all their lives will frightfully hear the words of Jesus, depart from me, you workers of evil. Of course, they would argue, we aren't workers of evil. We're nice people. We're good citizens. We don't want to hurt anyone. And we're not nearly as bad as those other people that are in society that I see on the news. But the same point is true for us. We might be the most moral people, but if we do not embrace Christ completely and wholly and, and trust him, then it's not enough. It is unbelief that keeps people from the kingdom. And so Jesus' warning here needs to be heard by all those who occupy America's churches, churches of the world, really. The only thing that counts on the final day is whether we have personally believed in Christ. But notice it's not only uh, physical or geographic proximity that's not enough. Ethnic proximity is not enough. Look at verse 28. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. 
This verse would have been absolutely horrific. It would have sent a chill down their spine. They never would have thought this could happen because they were the chosen people of God. They were not the unclean heathen of the world. And yet Jesus says, you're going to be counted as one of those unclean heathen. You're going to be cast out of the kingdom. The very thing that the Israel as a nation has been looking forward to when the Messiah would come and set up kingdom and they as Jews would enjoy feasting with the patriarchs and the prophets and all their hopes and dreams would come true spilling into that time of the kingdom. Jesus says, you are going to miss out on that because you have not embraced me. They're going to find themselves outside the kingdom and instead of feasting in the kingdom, where it says reclining at table. Instead, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. I also want to note that in light of some of what we talked about earlier, Jesus here still views the kingdom as future, a time that is yet to come when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be resurrected and they will be there feasting in the kingdom for all, with all of God's saints. But the point is that our ethnicity or our family does not save us. In God's family, it's been said, there are no grandchildren. There's only children. Every child of, everyone who believes is a child of God. And church, this is the good news of the gospel. That if we have trusted and believed in Christ, we can be saved from the very punishment that we deserve. This weeping and gnashing of teeth, this punishment is what we deserve because of our sins. Don't be mistaken, it's not because of our inherent righteousness or because of something that we have done that causes us to avoid that. It is only because of the grace of Christ. I remind you what John says in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. It says that he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, his, his own people, as we read in this passage, did not receive him. But we who have trusted and believed and received in Christ, we are given the right to be called children of God. We who were distant from God, we who hated God, who were enemies of him, have been brought near and been given the right to be called children, adopted into the family of God. But this, again, is not because of our will, the will of man, or because of our ex exertion. He says we're born of God. It's an act of divine mercy that he brings us about. And so, friends, we cannot gloss over this. We must let it move our heart. Christ has included us among his own. We are children of the Father. And so that means that we'll be included in the kingdom that is yet to come. And that's what he says in verse 29. He says, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. There's gonna be people from all over the planet and friends, you and I are included in that. We're gonna come from California and recline at table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. Won't that be a glorious day? We are included among the pro in the promises. This is the full fulfillment one day of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to Abraham, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed and one day that'll be seen as the nations flock from all the corners of the globe to go to Jerusalem and see the king, the true king who is reigned upon the throne physically upon this earth. Church, we can delight this morning that we 
have been moved to the front of the line. Verse 30 says, Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Israel, who got first dibs to hear the Messiah and repent and believe, failed to do so. And so it says they will be last. But us who were alienated from the promises of God have been moved to the front of the line. Now, does this mean that we can boast? Does this mean that we can take pride to think that we're better than the Jews or that we're better than someone else who doesn't believe? Absolutely not. This is all of grace. We've been born of God. We've been given new life because of him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Friends, if you know Christ, if he's opened your eyes, then recognize and praise him for his grace. Do not let a seed of pride well up in your heart to think that you are better than anybody else. We did not repent. We did not strive to enter the narrow door because of our own righteousness or because of our own wisdom or because we saw something that other people didn't or because we had more moral qualities than us or we had greater faith. We had nothing. We had sin. The only thing we brought to the table was our sin and our ugliness and our rebellion. But God in his kindness reached down to regenerate our hearts so that we might see the truth and repent and believe. And so we tell others this urgent truth that they must repent and believe and strive to enter the narrow door before it's too late. Now let me just say, if you're listening this morning online or here in person and you do not know Christ and you have not repented and trusted in him, I urge you to do so today. Today is the day of salvation. You can know the salvation that Christ offers today. You know that there will be a day of reckoning. There will be an accountability that you must give before your creator. Do not let that, that hand upon your back dissipate. But do something, act and strive today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. May God cause you to repent today. Friends, we must prepare for the coming kingdom. And Jesus makes it clear how we're to do that. May he enable us to do so. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your word which is clear even though it is hard. Well, the words of our Savior are hard to hear, to hear of those who are cast out of the kingdom, to hear those who never repent, to hear those who don't turn from their sin, who don't embrace Christ, who seek to be their own savior, be the Lord of their own lives, and will one day reap the consequences of such a position. Oh, Father, we ask that you would enable all who are here this morning, all who are listening, to be able to prepare rightly for a kingdom that is indeed coming and that will one day be unavoidable. We pray that you might press upon our hearts the urgency of this gospel to share it with all those around that we might be ambassadors for the coming king. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.